All right. How how was everyone's Christmas? Good. All right. It was it was there. Um, there was uh, some of my first Christmases uh, with non-Americans, uh, namely Brits or Commonwealth folks, Aussies and Kiwis and. Canucks and what have you, um, they kept talking about Boxing Day, this thing called Boxing Day, and I had no idea what it was, and I was getting excited because I was thinking, okay, all the excitement of Christmas is over, and you know, we're, we're still not really going back to, to work, what are we going to do, and so all the Brits had this thing, Boxing Day, and I had, like, imagine on the 26th, everyone just gets together and just starts, you know, all the pent-up aggressions, kind of like the purge, where you've just been keeping it all year, and then you could kind of, you know, get this out, and like, Boxing Day, I'm like, wow, is it bare knuckle fighting or, you know, do we have different weight categories or how does this work? Imagine my disappointment when I found out that Boxing Day, December 26th, is when traditionally in, say, Victorian England, all of the wealthy people would box up all the gifts that they didn't want and then give them to their servants. And then that would be the servants' Christmas when they could open up all the secondhand leftovers, broken toys and stuff. And is oh, aren't they wonderful? Oh, I have such a good master. He gave me a broken cane. He broke over my head because I said, is this all there is? Um, and so this Boxing Day was kind of this institutionalized recognition of regifting. Basically, that uh, despite all of the hints, despite all of the trying to, you know, find out what would somebody really want, and it's not about the gifts, it's about the thought. No, I'm just kidding, it's about the gift, and you better get it right, because if you get somebody the wrong gift, they're going to be disappointed, but they're not going to let you know, and then this gift might show up at a white elephant gift or something next year, and you kind of know that you missed the mark. It's this sense of disappointment. Um, In America, our Boxing Day is really one of the second big economic days after Black Friday because everyone's bringing back stuff. Either I wanted this, my expectation was I was going to get this, and it was the wrong size, the wrong color, the wrong thing. Found out I didn't want it. I want the the bigger model, the the whatever it is. And so there's this this love-hate relationship where on one hand we all know I'm getting free stuff. It's not freaks, I'm getting stuff for other people, but you know how it works. I'm getting gifts, but yet, it doesn't feel right, but is it really what I wanted? And and is it wrong to, to be disappointed when it's something that I didn't work for, it's just a free gift? And, and so there's this, this weird relationship. Growing up, I hated birthdays and I hated um, Christmas and that because I knew my own heart. I would never ask for what I really wanted. I, I was just too, uh, it was either, I, I don't know, I, I just felt it was unreasonable or too big. I, I just felt embarrassed asking for what I really wanted. So I'd be really nice and I'd never get what I'd wanted and I, and I just felt disappointed all the time but I'd never say anything. And, and so it was this weird relationship where I knew I was doomed and even getting excited about something, I knew it was going to be very different. Now, 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 this is just on the level of wrapping paper, on the level of stuff. What do we do when we're disappointed with God? Wait, wait, did I say that? Disappointed with God, the one who made everything, the one who gave us life, the one who loves us, the one for whom, despite all the other motivations, which are okay, he's the reason we're here today. 
So how could we be disappointed with God? How could we feel that what we've received from God in life, in ourself, in relationships, the journey thus far is not what it should be? That, that, that there should be more. It's My life is the wrong size, the wrong color. I, I want the next upgrade, the next model, but I can't take it back. And so I just have this rooted sense of disappointment. Where disappointment comes from is a misplaced expectation. When we have realistic expectations, we're not disappointment. Wait till your father gets home. Okay, there's no disappointment unless he's like, hey, yeah, I had a good day at the office. You're you're, you're fine. You know what's going to happen. And so it's, you know, one one to one. Or you're expecting to get something and you get it and everything's wonderful. But when it doesn't work out the way you knew it would or thought it should, there's disappointment. Where do we go when it's that way with God? You see, one of the difficulties of the pile on, and I think it's even difficult for us to give word to this, and that's why we have God's word, where we're looking over the shoulders of those who've wrestled with God before, and we see that throughout God's word are people that have been disappointed with God. And they're there in the Bible deliberately because they have the same hearts and it's the same God. And we all get to the same place. And unless we get there, we're not going to go deeper. Unless we let go of our misplaced expectations, we're not going to have our hands open to to lay hold of and embrace um, who God really is and what he has for us. You see, with God, we feel guilty because we know. How many people know somebody that has it worse than you? Right? There is always somebody that has it worse, genuinely has it worse. No matter how bad you have it, there's people who are suffering more. Just flip on the TV, right? And so we feel bad saying, well, how can I be disappointed with God when these people are suffering more and they don't seem to have the issue that I do in my heart? Or, or we look back on our lives and we think, God has done so much for me. How can I be such an ingrate? God has saved me. He's pulled me from the pit. I remember times when God has come through. So how can I now ter- feel this way? So I feel ungrateful. I feel selfish. Or, or that I feel I should be doing it better by now. This far along in the Christian walk, I see the excitement of new believers and people that have this exciting honeymoon puppy love relationship with God and everything's just wonderful and God's answering all their prayers and it's wonderful. And I'm going, how do I get a walk like that? Ministry of Silly Walks. How, how come my life isn't going that way where it's answered to prayer and it's excitement, it's new and it's fresh? My life feels like people who don't know God, where there's the rest of life and the unanswered questions. And what's next and what now? And if this is how God treats his friends, as Mother Teresa said, make me an enemy. And so we feel ashamed. And then we feel maybe we should have more faith. If I had more faith, if I learned a lesson I should have learned, then I wouldn't be here. So we feel guilty. So we feel selfish. We feel ashamed. We feel guilty feel ungrateful, and all the more if the expectations on us from others or from ourselves or our perception of God, it just ups the ante, should be better, should do better, should know better, should, ought, ought, should, and we pull away just a little bit more inside. See, the, the problem, I think, is this assumption of an implied contract. God Take my life. It's broken. Lord, what must I do to be saved? God, help me. God, anything. And and there's this transaction of grace and faith. And everything changes in a moment. 
in eternity, but everything seems the same. It's the next step in our life. And so there's this implied contract of initially where everything's new and new hope and a God of second chances and fresh. The more things get familiar, it's a sense of, well, I did this for you, God. I looked up. I turned around. I changed this. I struggled. I gave this up. I worked for this. And it's a sense of, well, I'm doing my part, God. Where are you? Why aren't you showing up? I'm showing up. And so it's somehow that God owes us. Like, I've given him my worship. I've given him my heart. I've given him my allegiance. I've sacrificed. But what I forget all the time is that God doesn't need any of us. God wants us. We all need God desperately. But do we want him? And when we come to expectations that are other than who God truly is, that gets in the way. So God brings us beyond ourselves to pry these things away and that we reject these false notions of God so that we're not worshiping someone that isn't there, that isn't coming through for us. This God we recreate in our own image. Remember, God created us in his image. We return the favor the rest of our lives. And so God will lead us to these places where we are disappointed with him. We're going to be looking at somebody who's been dealing with all of this. Should, could, ought, God, where, why, how, who am I, where are you, God, where did it go sideways? And we're going to look at one of the ultimate elite warriors of the faith, Elijah. Now, there are four clusters of miracles in God's word, where we have 95% of all miracles are centered around four, four clusters. One of them is around Moses, one of them is around Elijah, Elisha, one of them is around Jesus, and one of them is around the disciples. All four of these groups come together in an event, we're going to be looking at it today. But first, we're looking at one of these characters, Elijah. Elijah was the hardcore guy. Elijah was the prophet. Elijah was the sword. Um, Elijah lived during a time when everybody was kind of putting it on, on, on cruise control. They were phoning it in in their faith. God had come through. God had rescued. God had called. They were God's people. He had just gone and blown doors and made a way. And they were sitting back in their faith. They went to church. They were faithful. They read their, or they, they listened to the, the, the Torah being read. And, and they'd recite it back at festivals. And they'd talk about it. So they were, they were checking all the boxes, but they were on cruise control. What really dominated their lives was what was going on in, with their bank book, what was going on in, in, um, with their neighbors, what was going on with, with the world. And, and so their, their hopes rise, rise and fell, um, rise and fell in relation to that and not God. And so uh, God raised up these prophets to bring people back to say, guys, it was never about your life being a certain way. It was never about security. It was never about just being separate so, so you could have a party and go to heaven and the rest of the world goes to hell. What it's always been about is me reaching out to the world through you. Blessed to be a blessing. And so he's bringing him back to their first love. Well, Elijah was a guy, or Elijah, that God raised up to really put an emphasis on, guys, this is it. This is the last warning. It's coming down. There's consequences for all these false gods in my name that you've been worshiping. And all the ways you've been mixing around and making me less. Idolatry lowers the image of God and it reduces the image of God in us. So all of us become less than human through false worship. And so God raises up Elijah. And, and, and he does all sorts of miraculous things. Probably the greatest Sunday school lesson that can ever be told is the showdown at the OK Corral in 1 Kings chapter 18. 
We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 today. 1 Kings chapter 18 is this huge showdown where we had 450 priests of Baal, which means master. This is the Canaanite deity that everybody, all the um, neighbors of Israel was worshiping. And through these kings, Manasseh and Joram and these other, other evil kings, they had led the nation astray, saying, you know, God isn't coming through for us. I'm disappointed with God. We're a nation, but we're not a great nation like all the other ones, so we're going to do it the way they do it. They worship these gods. They seem, there's God seem to be coming through for them, so we'll do it our way. And with, through permitting all of this false worship, everybody's heart grew cold. And so God raises up Elijah to say to challenge the people in love. And so we have this scene where 450 prophets on one side and in this corner weighing in, we have Elijah. And he tells the people this. How long will you keep limping between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. But what you're doing is keeping your options open. You're, you're, you're just saying, who's going to come through for me more? Oh, that's who I give my allegiance. God, I'm going to be good and play nice, and if you answer my prayers the way I think they should be answered, I'll follow you. I'll give you my allegiance. Okay, bitter, bitter. Okay, going once, going twice. Who's going who's gonna to take my allegiance, my worship? Okay, five. Do I hear five? Do I hear ten? And, and you're just sort of auctioning off worship and affection and relationship. And so if, if God didn't come through, maybe Baal did. And they would always have another God, another escape plan, another way through. So they could never be disappointed. They always had a plan B. And so in the midst of this indecision, a passive heart that would not make a decision for anything or anyone, the people were lost. And God challenges them. And so he sees that, that these, these false prophets are shown to be false because they, they spend all day carving themselves up and screaming and worshiping and doing religion as hardcore as anyone has ever done religion, and nothing happens. There was no answer. There was silence. And then Elijah stacks the deck against him and pours water all over the sacrifice and wood, and there's no way it's going to light. God sends fire from heaven, licks up the fire, licks up the sacrifice, and then Elijah is used to actually put to death the false priest. Okay, real quick, um, this, this is going to seem a little brutal, but it's, it's part of the whole story. What was going on was not just a disappointment in God. See, the disappointment was God was then attaching hearts to something else, and that something else was killing them. Okay, when, when I taught on this way, way, way back, maybe three years ago or so, um, I've never heard a better illustration, so I'll use it. Most likely an urban legend, but it's a rural legend because it takes place in the boonies. Um, in America with sheep, uh, ranches, I guess they call them. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have fences, barbed wire fences, and you can put an electric current and you can run, you know, miles and miles, hundreds of miles of fences, and you can keep the sheep in and everything's fine. Um, in Australia, um, other places, uh, parts of Alaska, there, there's just no way you've got that much space and uh, you can't run fences. So you have to just work with horses and other things, jeeps, and run the sheep. Well, where there's no fences, wolves can get them. And so one of the stories, at least, is what one of the ranchers came up with, and it was an Indian legend, apparently, is uh, because it got below freezing every night, they took a knife, dipped it in sheep's blood, and stuck it hilt down so the blade was up, you know, in the snow or in the hard ground. They'd come back the next day, and there was a dead wolf. You see, what happened, the wolf would smell the uh, sheep's blood and would go up and start licking the knife. After the first lick, Everything that the wolf was drinking was now its own blood. See, it had cut its tongue, but because it was so cold, it couldn't feel the pain. So it smelled the blood, it had the, the bloodlust, and it would just want more and more. And so it kept slicing its tongue, and it drank its own blood, and it died. 
That's the effect of sin. We don't see the damage that it's doing at the time. We just want more because it fulfills whatever our need is, especially when we're in a place of disappointment. But from the first engagement, our life is flowing out of us and we don't realize it until it kills us. See, that's the flip side of disappointment and that's where we go. And that's why God had to eliminate this because it was so deadly, so cancerous with his people. So that's the context now for where we're going to go with uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. There was this tremendous victory, one prophet alone, uh, and he was hiding in caves, and and the troops were out looking for um, this one prophet, and he shows up, takes his life in his hands, and says, here I am, I stand alone for God, they have this showdown, 450 priests um, put to death by this prophet, and so everybody had turned, and everybody's worshiping Yahweh, God had said in his word, it's a faith walk. When you could do it yourself, you didn't have to trust me. You were slaves in Egypt. You had all the food you wanted. You're going to the promised land, and you have to trust me for water. And what they did is that's why they were worshiping Balks. They believed they got the rain from this God that gave them stuff rather than this God they had a hard time trusting. And so God said, when you don't obey me, I'm turning off the water. God turns the faucet back on. So there's this three and a half year drought that has ended. The, all the false worship is destroyed. All the people come to God. He's marching on the, on the um, palace. All he has to do is just go there and depose the king and it's done. And that's the chapter and that's the vic- victory. This guy's entire life had been leading up to this moment. And it was glorious. And then we get to this chapter. What we're going to look at is this point simply. If we allow God to be God, to be truly God, to be himself, he will disappoint us. Okay, right after the victory, we have this. Now Ahab told Jezebel, so Ahab's the king, Jezebel's his wife, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. Okay, and this is, uh, this is kind of a mob talk. It'd be like a wise guy voice if there was a voice over here of, uh, Let me make you an offer you can't refuse. Um, the Gambinos have been... So it's the sense of, um, it's, a, it's a direct threat. Uh, this phrase here is what God uses by covenants because everybody talked to each other this way. I'm committing myself to this act and if I don't follow through on it, I pray the worst thing that would happen. You killed 450 people with a sword, may God do worse than me if I don't do the same to you. So I'm committing myself to your destruction and I'm putting my life and my pain on it. And so, so she's just being very deliberate. You kind of get, in this marriage between um, Ahab and Jezebel, you kind of understand who wears the hijab in that family. Because, uh, you know, Ahab's just like, oh, he killed all the prophets. I don't know what to do. I'm just the commander of the army. I have no recourse. And his wife, okay, dude, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to kill this guy. So she's like the active one. He's the passive one. And and this explains an awful lot in terms of just their, their whole dynamic. But... So he's stood, stood down the king, stood down the prophets, stood down the people. God is on his side, shows up, he's in power, and he gets this threat from this Phoenician king, this or queen, this drama queen, and, and she's just having a fit, and his heart melts. Elijah was afraid. He just stood down, all these people, and now suddenly he just ran out of strength. He ran for his life. 
When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. The, the sense of this is they're dead. They can't do anything for you because they're dead. And, and I'm no better. My life is worthless. I'm a failure. Then he lay down under the bush. He fell asleep. Riding in glory. And then he just turns and cuts and runs. What's going on? Nothing happened in the story. There was nothing else that happened other than he just heard this, this, this direct threat from this queen. Um, and anyone else you would think in God's power would just keep on trucking. But we see there's much more going on here. We see how he really saw himself, how he really saw God, what he was really expecting of this implied contract. God, if I serve you then, we see it coming out here. And I don't know what he expected to happen. I don't know how he was expecting it to work out because he was ready to die just a chapter before in serving God. And now he's terrorized of his life from this one impudent queen, an impudent queen, and, and he runs. Okay, Beersheba is the southernmost area of God's territory. So he's dealing with, he's dealing with um, the, the, you know, Mount Carmel and, and kind of the, the people. And now he goes as far away as he can. And he's, he's really planning on dying. So he says, I'm never going to see you again. He sends his servant away. The word there is that he dismissed him for good. You are, you know, I'm, I'm giving you your, uh, here's your severance pay. We're done. Please go live a good and happy life. Be brave. Remember me. Stay gold pony boy. And sends him on his way. And then he goes off to die. And so from, from the territory of God, where it starts getting really dangerous from there, he goes into the wilderness another day, in, in, into the wild. And it's a sense of he was really planning on dying, whether he would die of exposure or starvation or uh, animals or um, you know, bandits or whatnot. He just wanted to be taken out. He wasn't going to take his life, but he was going to allow his life to be taken. And so he just tells God, I've had enough. I'm worthless. This is all it is. My life's come to nothing. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Remember, there's, there's a famine going on at the time. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Guys, remember the story of Jonah, where God said, go here, and Jonah said, okay, and he goes exactly the opposite way, as far as he could go, tried to get past Spain. Okay, and if you know the map, Nineveh is pretty far east, Spain's pretty far west. Um, he's, Elijah's doing the exact same thing. He said, go here, and he's like, see ya, and he's going the exact opposite, goes to the end of the territory, sends his servant away in the last bastion of Jew country, and then he heads into the wild. And he lays there. God strengthens him. He says, you can't do this. You're going away from me. Let me help you. And so he strengthens him for the journey away from God. For the journey of disobedience. For the journey away from what God had asked him to do. And so God meets him where he is at. Not where Elijah thinks he should be. That's an important point. 
You see, because if I was in that situation, I would think, how do I get back to God? Well, in order to get back to God, I've got to first get over all the reasons, um, all the feelings, all the issues that caused me to see God in this way. And then I have to do this. Then I have to repent. Then I have to make it right. Then I have to show God how faithful I am. Then I have to go back to Jerusalem. Then I have to. I, I, I. It's eye disease. I can't see past me. And God's not waiting for that. He's not saying, okay, you walked away from my presence. I am here in the center of my will for your life. The last thing I ask you to do, and I'm going to wait here until you decide to follow me and come back to me. God never does that. God met him right where he was at and gave him what he needed, even though he was going away from him. He strengthened him. He didn't didn't condone his rebellion, but he met him and gave him what he needed. And he knew that Elijah needed to get even further away to be able to see himself. So rather than two days into the wilderness, he goes 40 days, and he goes all the way to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. He went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Remember last, last week we looked at the prophecy about Jesus, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Same word here. I've been everything you expected me to be in passion and in action, God. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Suddenly realized how long it had been, how lonely he had felt, how weak he had felt, how scared he had been. How much he'd been trusting God and going way beyond himself. And now when reality caught up with him, he realized he just, God should have worked it out differently. God, I did my part. I was terrified and I did this thing and you came through miraculously. How could my heart fail after that? You see, his expectation was coming out that if I serve God, then how come I'm scared? How come I still doubt? How can I still hurt? How can I lose? And he broke down into a mentality, them and us. They have done this to me. They have done that to, to me. And it's this division and it's an isolation. And then it's a sense of God, well, now you owe me. And you failed. See, Elijah had a sense that God came through for other people. God came through for the Israelites, delivering from false worship. God came through for the king, giving him yet one more chance to repent. God came through in executing his his judgment on on those who persistently uh, um, led people astray. But God wasn't coming through for him. He served faithfully. He was a cog in the machine. Others were more important. Their lives matter. God was there for them. And the only thing that Elijah had to do was show up and be used in others' lives. God, this is where I hurt. God, this is where I hate. How about us? When we're disappointed, at the bottom of that is the root of disappointment with God. Do, do we feel in some way either that God owes us for our sacrifice, for our obedience, for our faithfulness, when others are going astray, when others require more grace? All our hard work, all our blood, sweat, and tears, surely, God, it should amount to more than just this here and now. And I look around at others' lives, and I see God coming through for them. I see God answering their prayers. I see them growing. I see them getting it. And I, who have been given so much more, how can I still doubt, hurt, 
hey, be disappointed. I feel ashamed. I feel guilty. I feel selfish. It's hard enough to tell you. Imagine me trying to tell God. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Do you see what's going on? He had made it to the destination, you know, to the destination, and 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 God had or God had asked him, "What are you doing here?" And he poured out his heart. Finally, got to the bottom of the issue. I am disappointed in you, God. They have done this, and 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 where am I? And he's afraid, and so God gives him perspective. See, he's at Mount Sinai. Who else met God at Mount Sinai? Moses, in the giving of the law. There was an earthquake. There was a fire. There was a great wind. The people were terrified. The people were absolutely paralyzed with fear. God in his holiness was so absolutely awesome and present that if any animal touched the mountain, they were to be stoned. That there was such a separation, the people were absolutely horrified. And so Moses goes up 40 days, 40 nights, and meets with God, has a power lunch. It's fellowship, it's intimacy, it's grace, and goes down and acts as God would. And so Elijah has the same encounter with God. What preceded that? God revealed himself to Moses. The exact same wording is used here. And God passed Moses by and revealed himself. And how did he reveal himself? Was he revealing himself in the, the volcano and the fire and the thunder and the earthquake and the wind and the loud voice to Moses? Not at all. He revealed himself in a voice. And the Lord called out, great Awesome, mighty in power, extending compassion and loving kindness to the thousandth generation for those that love God and keep his commandments. Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He revealed himself in intimacy to Moses. And so he could tell people, Moses is my man. I speak to him face to face like a friend. And Moses got it. That God was not in the scary fire. He was not in the earthquake. He was not in the invading army. He was not in the Egyptian uh, attempted holocaust. He was not in all of these plagues that were coming down. But he was present in intimacy. And Elijah needed to learn that as well. God was not in the fire coming down and taking up his sacrifice. He was not in the, the prophets being put to death. He was not in the crisis. He was not in the disaster. He was not in the unexpected circumstances happening. But in the midst of all of that, he was more present. He was more gentle. He was more vulnerable and intimate than we could ever, ever imagine. Notice Elijah said the exact same thing to God. His tone didn't change. His need to say what he needed to say didn't change. But now he had perspective. What Elijah needed to learn, and this is a theme that's been coming up in John, is that what happens in life isn't life. It's God. It's, uh, it's life. 
and life is broken. It isn't the crisis. It isn't the earthquake. It isn't the wind. He was saying that God is in all these things that happened. And therefore, what happens in life, my heart shrinking in fear. This, this queen seeming so much more malevolent at the time. The past victories being forgotten. God wasn't in any of these things. These were circumstances in which God was guiding and directing, causing all things to work for good. But God remained God. God remained good. God's plan for Elijah, God's heart for Elijah remained unchanged. But Elijah couldn't see that because he could only see his status or God's implied contractor coming through and what happened or didn't happen. And was it occurring according to his timetable? Did Elijah get the gift he thought he should receive for Christmas or not? And so in having the new perspective, Elijah says the same thing. And the text goes on. But what God does, and it's unspoken, It's unspoken, but he gives him a new commission. Okay, the plan to end the evil rule, the plan to restore worship, the plan that people's hearts would be drawn back to God was simply, Elijah, a few more steps, you're in, in the palace, and you proclaim Yahweh, and you depose the king, and I put my dude in. Now, 42 days away from that plan, and and, and things have changed, and all this is going on, God meets him, and he commissions him, and he says, you know what? I've given you, given you perspective on who I am. I've also given you perspective on the people around you. So he says, I'm g- going to commission you. And I want you to know this. I still reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed him, worshiping a false god like kissing, like intimacy. And so he's saying, you said you feel you're the only one left. And it's unfair. And you've done all this, and this is where it's going. But I want you to know what I'm doing through people that follow me faithfully, I'm doing with thousands of people. That the people that call on me are so much more united. Just because you can't see it now doesn't mean it isn't real. And my heart in lifting them up and protecting them and strengthening them and keeping them, my heart bragging on them is the same as for you, Elijah. Because guess what? I have also kept you, Elijah. You are also precious to me. I am also using you. And so he gives him a perspective of himself. He gives him a perspective of the environment around him. And he reminds him who he is by showing him who he isn't. That it isn't a matter of what you've done and what you haven't done and what I owe you. These 7,000 people are hiding in caves. They haven't done anything yet. But God is saying, look, (laughs) I've got this. I've got this. Can you see beyond just the immediate? When we're disappointed by God, do we feel that God is disappointed with us? Because I think this probably was the deal breaker for Elijah. He knew God had revealed more to him than to anyone. He knew God had used him more than anyone. There were more miracles, more power, more prophecy, more truth, more manifestation of God than than up to date than anything since Moses. God was working. He was real. And Elijah knew that. And so if anyone should be getting it right, if anyone should be the spokesman, if anyone should take the helm, kick booty and take name, it should be Elijah. And so when Elijah knew his own heart, that wasn't lining up. When Elijah knew he wasn't so keen with being part of the plan now. When Elijah saw that he was missing out, I did everything right and it still hurts and I still lost. Elijah felt that God was disappointed with him. He should do better. He should know better. 
He should have more faith. He should realize others have it harder than him. He should be more grateful. And he, and he just, his heart despaired and he wanted to die. He said, I am worthless. I, I'm better off dead because you gave me so much and look what I did with it, God. I fumbled all of it. When we feel disappointed by God, do we feel that God is disappointed with us? Do you get what God did with Elijah? He met him where he's at, even though he was going away from him. He strengthened him because he was on Elijah's side and wanted good for him. And he led him to a place that was a different perspective, where he could forget who he was for a moment. And God showed him himself, apart from circumstances, apart from the phone call that changes our life, apart from the crisis, apart from the life we have to have that we no longer can have. And in a whisper, in intimacy and vulnerability, he told him who he was. Elijah, why are you here? You're here that I can tell you who you are. You are beloved. You are precious. I have kept them. I have kept you. I am not in circumstances. I am not in crisis. I am with you always. So who is God going to be to us this new year? There is great freedom in being disappointed with God. Because it means we have come to the end of a false expectation of God, a false expectation of ourself. Another dreaded ought, another sense of having to measure up or having to earn, or Jesus plus something else, or if I can only top up or add or atone somehow. And we're right back to the treadmill. And God is saying this new year, let go of all of it. I've done it already. And there's going to be a lot of circumstances. And I don't know what this year is going to hold, but I guarantee you there is going to be earthquakes. There is going to be a fire. There is going to be a great wind. One, in your life, you may even feel like it's splitting rocks. But God isn't in any of those. He's closer. He's more intimate. He's nearer. He is on your side. And he's whispering to you. I'd like to invite the deacons forward that we can celebrate together one of the greatest disappointments God's people have ever known, our atonement. Because what people had expected was that God would come through immediately. This is right now where I hurt. This is right now where I hate. This is right now where I feel less than, where I feel guilty, where I feel unworthy. And so I want a Messiah that's going to punish my enemies. I want a Messiah that is going to, with power, get rid of all those who are against me. Get rid of the thems. I want a Messiah who's going to answer my prayers now. And what they got rather than power was an infant. What they got rather than beauty and and style and, and awe was somebody from whom we would hide our face. A pariah, the, the dork, the outcast, the geek, somebody that you would tease, the guy that got stuffed into a locker in, in school. All our expectations for the best of and the greatest and all the immediate and God's going to take everything I have and multiply it and make it better were dashed on the cross. When all our hopes were crucified and killed. And we realized that all our hopes were for our salvation. If I could make it right. And the great freedom that Elijah discovered in the presence of God. And the great freedom that all who call on Christ discover. Is that we can't do it. We cannot do it. But guess what? Whereas we are disappointed when we have false expectations. God is not cannot be, never will be disappointed in us because he knows exactly what we are. Mindful of our frame that we are but dust.
He knows we're going to mess up. He knows the sin you're probably thinking of now. Would this guy shut up for crying out loud? Okay, repent. We got communion coming up. Just a little spoiler alert. Um, Whatever. He knows the sin we're going to do tomorrow. He knows the disappointment. He knows the heartbreak. And he's already made atonement for it. He's already made provision for it. And he's already waiting for us right there. Not where we think we should be. Not the last thing he asked us to do. But wherever we are, sitting down, going toward him, going away from him. He meets us there to reveal himself more intimately. I am glad God disappoints me. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Because my image of the way life should be is uber Bill Osgood. And that is no God at all. And so I come to the end of myself gladly now. And it still is terrible and I can't believe I'm still doing it. But I recognize the freedom in being able to then lay hold of the God who is. The God who loves me in my mess. The God who will see us through faithfully because it is finished in Christ. So I would encourage you to reflect on the goodness, the provision, the mercy and grace of God. If you are checking out faith, this is just a symbolic thing to remind us it's all about Christ. You can just let it pass. Please let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Uh, Take the elements and we'll all partake together. Um, Let us worship.